Lord Jesus, you have promised to transform us by the renewing of our minds. We ask that you will do that marvelous process today as we're talking about you and your word and how you change us. Thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, water lily white in a sewer pond world. Maybe this title is a little more self-explanatory. Um, I know for me, it was very difficult understanding how to have a pure mind. And so this is a struggle I really wanted to talk about. Now as I'm uh, living on the edge of a university campus, I'm astonished at how many girls, not just guys, there have been plenty of guys who come and say, look, I'm really struggling with porn and sexual addiction and sexual thoughts. But girls come to me and say, you know, I am really battling with masturbation, with lust, with an addiction to pornography. <coughs> Excuse me. It's a huge problem. And I've realized that this is something that it's such an isolating problem for girls. Every girl who talks to me feels like she's the only one. How can she be so bad, so messed up? Somehow our culture especially emphasizes that for a woman, you've got to have a pure mind. With a guy, well, guys are guys, but how can you do something so shameful? So that, it's not like I'm going to spend the whole time talking about masturbation. Don't, don't get excited here. Um, but I do feel like we really need to talk about how to be pure. Pure women, not just in our bodies, but in our minds. How can God change us into his image? So I decided to call it Water Lily White in a sewer pond world. You know, not long ago, I was talking to a girl on the phone as she took her pregnancy test, terrified, you know. And for me, I was just going, oh, Lord, please, please. It was so different from when I took pregnancy tests. And it's positive, and I'm squealing with joy, and then my husband wraps me in his arms, and we pray together and dedicate this baby to the Lord. But this one wasn't anything like that. She was hiding out and in a bathroom in a Rite Aid and calling me and saying, okay, I'm ready to take it. So we waited and waited for the results, and it was negative. Praise God that there's not going to be a child who has to suffer from some of these mistakes this time. It was just a couple of weeks before they had another girl talking to me on the phone, saying, I've I got to take a pregnancy, pregnancy test. I'm so scared. You know, when does it stop? I just had somebody email me, too. I'm afraid my girlfriend is pregnant. But somehow, sometimes we think that as long as we didn't get pregnant, well, you know, it was a mistake, but it's over. No big, no big harm done. No, no great damage. But we forget what God is doing in our lives and what the devil is doing to pollute us. You know, this girl said to me, I was a good girl. How did this happen to somebody like me, saving myself for my husband? And then to end up in this situation with my boyfriend. Now he's dumped me, now I'm feeling devastated, and I'm struggling with this on top of everything else. And I just wanted to wrap my arms around her and assure her it doesn't have to be that way. All I could do was pray with her and encourage her, show her Christ does not see you as defiled when you have come to him and you've surrendered to him. This is the beauty of the gospel. 
But we don't want to, in being wrapped up in the beauty of the gospel, get into cheap grace and say, well, God will always cleanse me later on, so it's okay. I don't have to really worry about it. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in the culture we can't even see what it is. You know, when I was flying in, in the airport a few days ago, I looked down, I could see this blanket of yellow smog over the city. It was nasty looking. But then when I was on the ground and we're driving away from the airport, I look up, the sky's bright blue. It looks great. When you're in the middle of something, you can't see it for what it is. And that's what we have in our culture today. It's like smog, this evil influence that's so permeating. We don't even realize it. We don't even see it for what it is. We get callous to it. We hear about people like Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt. Well, at least they're living together. They're staying together and they're faithful and they're raising their children. How beautiful. Better than what it is like in Hollywood for all these other people, right? No, they're destroying the sanctity of marriage. And they're on this, this sinister campaign. They're saying, we're not going to get married until everybody is free to get married if they want to. Men with men, women with women. And I'm like, great, so what do you want? Men with children? Should they be free too? What about women who want to marry multiple men? They should be free too. Isn't that love? No, 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 it's not love. We've got to look at what God's plan was. What was God's plan for marriage? We talked about that in the last seminar. And I want to talk this time about God's plan for sex. What is God's plan for sex? Two people who have given them up all other relationships as the most important relationships, they say, this relationship will be above all other relationships in my life. I choose this person till death do us part. Leave my father and mother. I'm going to cleave to this person and they're going to cleave to me. How beautiful. Can you imagine what marriage would be like without sex? My husband gets down on one knee and says, I'd like to ask you to be my roommate till death do us part. We're going to live in the same house no matter what. How many of you have had a roommate? Can you imagine that? You decide till death do us part, I'm going to be roommates with you. We'll rent a house together, then we'll buy a house together. No matter how rotten you treat me, I'm going to live with you. How beautiful would that be? My husband and I get married and we promise, okay, I'm going to do the dishes, you're going to vacuum. This is great, till death do us part. But no, God had something so much better. He planned marriage to be an expression of his love. Two people who become more vulnerable with each other than any other people in the world. In another seminar I did once, I likened it to a secret room that links your house with the house of your best friend for life. And there's this secret room that's underground. And the two of you are going to have this room that you share forever the two of you are the only ones who come in this room. You decorate it just the way that the two of you want it. No one else comes in here. This is your secret haven where the two of you get away. You love each other. You can be completely vulnerable with each other. No one else gets into that room. Only the two of you. But nowadays in our culture, we don't have secret rooms anymore. The secret room has become the front porch. And now I decorate the front porch and show what I'm like, the uniqueness of me, you know, our front porch. Look at girls who are walking past you in the store. Their skirts are so short. Their, their shirts are so low. They're trying to show everything off. They're pleading, somebody notice me. I'm special too. 
I'm beautiful. See what I look like? They literally won't go out of the house if they've got acne or a bad hair day. How insecure, how sad. Because we've made our value all about the secret room, we've got to advertise, this is what I'm like. And then a person who's pure, who's trying to be modest, who's trying to save themselves. It's like all the other streets, all the other houses on this street. They're, this house, wow, look at that front porch. Silky material and beautiful bright colors. Sexy lingerie, this is what she has to offer. Then this house, wow, she's got beads hanging down, you know. And my house, no front porch, just this solid gray cement block. You know, that's how we feel. That's how the culture tells us to feel as women when we're modest, when we save ourselves for our husband, when we keep the secret room a secret room. Then we feel like, man, I'm nothing. Look at me. Everybody else can show themselves off. They can show some cleavage. The guys pay attention to them. I remember how I used to dress. I loved that feeling. When I felt insecure, I'd go out and get a new shirt. Or I'd just wear one that only barely came to here. I'd get my tightest shorts on. Back then, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, we had to roll up our little <laughs> jean shorts. So we'd roll them up skin tight. And I'd wear my shortest shorts, and I'd prance around. And the guys would notice me, and they'd come over and flirt and put their arm around my waist. Ooh, it felt good. And I'd go back into my room that night. Ah, I feel good about myself. I remember purposely putting on a swimsuit and walking to the lake when I was working at summer camp because I wanted guys to notice. I didn't mean to create lust in their minds. I wasn't trying to lead them all to want to have sex with me. I just wanted somebody to notice me, to value me. That secret room has become the front porch and our whole culture is being devastated by this as a result. But God has a plan to rescue us. I'm going to talk a little bit about the culture that we're living in, the sewer pond that we live in. More than 70% of men from 18 to 34 visit a pornographic site in a typical month. Nine out of 10 children between the ages of 8 and 16 have viewed pornography on the internet. The average age of first viewing pornography for boys is 8. For girls, it's 11. Only a few years back, it was 11. Now, boys, it's 8. They're finding magazines in the closet. And the rest of their lives, they wrestle with these addictions. 47% of families said pornography is a problem in their home. 29% of born-again adults, people who claim to be born-again in the U.S., feel it is morally acceptable to view movies with explicit sexual behavior. I can't even tell you how horrifying that is to me. 29%? A 1996 Promise Keepers survey at one of their stadium events revealed that over 50% of the men in attendance were involved with pornography within one week of attending the event. Do you know what pornography is? Pornography is this profound cheapening of what God has created. God has made this beautiful relationship, two people who commit in the eyes of God and all others. They will be only for each other. They will keep themselves only to each other for as long as they both shall live. And what the night before would have been sin becomes a blessing of God that night. What an hour before the wedding 
with sin an hour after the wedding is a beautiful expression of God's love. We can't understand that as human beings. We can't fully understand the mystery of what God has given us in sex. This beautiful relationship, it is amazing. And I'm speaking as a woman who's married. I, when I walked down that aisle at my wedding, I was so proud to wear white. Somebody had suggested, you know, with your complexion, maybe you should wear cream. I was like, oh no, oh no. I'm going to wear the whitest white I can wear because I fought for this. I may not have been able to save my virginity because of being raped, but I could save my purity. And God has blessed me so much. Now, some of you, when you hear that, I know what the devil is saying to you, but you didn't. So it's too late for you. That is a lie of the devil. We're going to talk about that. God can restore purity. He is a God of miracles. He is a God who does things we cannot understand. There are scars when we make mistakes. But I don't think any of you who are virgins are going to go, oh, good, God will restore it. Well, great, I can go throw my body away. This is wonderful. (laughs) God has given us such a blessing in the gift of sex. You know, I tell you the truth. As a married woman, sometimes I just think, wow, how do people do this with somebody they don't love? How can they become this naked and vulnerable with a person when they're worrying about what does that person think of what my body looks like? How can they do that with somebody who doesn't love them? This love relationship that I have with my husband is not like what I used to see in raunchy movies, where it's all passion, it's all feelings, the intensity of the emotion. Just an hour earlier, they were slapping each other in the face and screaming cuss words to each other. You know how it is in the movies. Then the next thing you know, they're flinging themselves into bed together, and it's all passion. That's disgusting. I can't tell you how disgusting that is to me now as a married woman. Now I know what sex is meant to be. And I look at that, and I want to throw up. Pornography is this cheapening that makes sex into an act that's purely lustful. It's purely for self, self pleasure. And it's not about love at all. It's all about me. And what you do, it's all for you. And two people are trying to get pleasure out of each other. You can say it's love, but nobody makes love outside of marriage. They only have sex. Because love is something that serves the other person. No one is going to take the other person's purity, knowing that this is a horrible thing to do, knowing they're sinning against this person in love. That's not love. I don't care what you call it. So pornography is a huge problem. Not just in, and as a result of pornography and how it grows, there are now 27 million sex slaves worldwide, 2 million of them children. There are no words to express what that means. 27 million sex slaves. Every 30 seconds, someone is victimized. The slave trade makes more than $32 billion a year, more than Walmart, Coke, and McDonald's combined. It goes on around you. Houses and neighborhoods, streets that you drive down, you don't know it, but it's there. At least one in four girls are sexually abused in America. Those are the statistics, the official statistics of what gets reported. It's really more like one in two and maybe more than that in in my experience from what I see in talking with people. 28% of those admitting to sexual addiction are women. 28%. There's a shocker. When you think porn is something for men, 
Think about it again. 34% of female readers of today's Christian woman's online newsletter admitted to intentionally accessing internet porn in a recent poll. And one out of every six women, including Christians or those who claim to be Christians, struggles with an addiction to pornography. Most of those statistics are from safefamilies.org. This world that we live in is horrifying and it's getting much worse, exponentially worse every year. At a 2003 meeting seven years ago of the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, two-thirds of the 350 divorce lawyers who attended said the internet played a significant role in the divorces in the past year, with excessive interest in online porn contributing to more than half such cases. Pornography had an almost non-existent role in divorce just seven or eight years ago before that. Can you imagine what it's going to be like 20 years from now? Not to mention what's happening with video gaming, the horrible things going on, you know, um, Grand Theft Auto, this popular video game includes, you can, if you want, stomp on a prostitute and get blood, you know, make blood flow all over the place. That's part of one of the fun things you can do if you want to play Grand Theft Auto, in addition to murdering policemen and stealing cars and doing all these things. But of course, the good news is it's only a video game, so it doesn't really affect our minds, right? Marriage is not a sacred paradise where sex is beautiful and holy anymore. It never was in homes where Christ was not the center because so often what happens is it's really just all about self. I want pleasure from you. But now with our culture telling us that sex is all about getting pleasure for ourselves, it's only getting worse every year. But even more than that, I want to be personal about this. How about us? How about me? When I was growing up, you know, Nobody talked to me about sex when I was a little kid. My mom gave me a book and I read it wide-eyed. Wow, thought that was pronounced vagina for years. <laughs> <laughs> and then somewhere along the way, <laughs> that, that book came after I had already found out about what vaginas did. <laughs> because when I was 10 years old, one of my friends came to school one morning and said, you won't believe what my mom told me. And she gave me all the dirty details. And believe me, they were dirty, coming from another little dirty-minded girl. And now we had something to be obsessed about. This was secret. Nobody had told us about this. It was amazing. Suddenly, newspaper articles and things that I'd read before that didn't make sense made sense. That's what they meant. I thought sex meant boy or girl. I wondered what they were talking about when they said I wanted them to be able to have sex. It's like, well, but he is. <laughs> ah, now I became obsessed. And this other girl who told me about it, the two of us together, we talked about sex all the time. We would gaze. I'm not proud of this, but I'm being honest with you. We would gaze at men's crotches. Like, wow, you know, this is amazing. I wonder what's in there. All the mystery. Sex was so horrifyingly mysterious to us that we, we couldn't stop thinking about it. And it didn't get any better as we got older. Now, my friend, you know, we're, what, that's 24 years ago now. Now my friend, who was still my friend, now we're on Facebook as friends, she posts sexual raunchy pictures constantly. She didn't break away. I did. That's not fair. 
she should have been able to break away too. The grace of God has done what it's done in my life, and I'm so grateful, so immeasurably grateful that God did not leave me trapped in that life. But when I decided I wanted to follow Christ, I was sincere. I wanted to give my life to him. I was 16, full of dreams of how God was going to use me as a missionary. And then as I was studying to be a lifeguard one day, my lifeguarding teacher sat down with me. She said, Nicole, if you keep dressing the way you're dressing and acting the way you're acting around guys, you're not going to be a virgin much longer. And I was horrified. Number one, how did she know I was a virgin anyway? That was amazing. But <laughs> not knowing how, you know, how the world worked, I didn't realize how obvious I was. But now I was just horrified. What, what does she mean? I'm saving myself for my husband someday. But practically, I was wrapping my identity around being attractive to guys. And don't think that that's going to just go away as soon as you get married. You know, I had I realized after I got married, wow, I still have to be careful how I act around guys. When I was a single girl, it was like, well, I don't want guys to think that I'm interested in them. But as a married woman, I found, you know, some guys don't mind flirting with a married woman. Sometimes they like it more because it's, I don't know, the stakes are higher. Maybe it's that they feel like they're going to, you know, they really score if they get a married woman to flirt back. Maybe it's because they know there's no expectation of any commitment out of me. I don't know what it is. But I realized if I didn't stay centered on Christ, I could easily fall back into enjoying attention from guys. And I just praise God that he had rescued me so many years earlier and helped me to learn a different way of relating to guys. Because I was called a flirt. Somebody told me one time, I was talking to one of my guy friends, and I said, I just can't believe that girl is so disgusting. She's always sitting on guys' laps and all that. She's such a flirt. And he said, Nicole, I can't even believe you. He laughed in my face. I was like, what are you talking about? What, what are you laughing at me? He's like, you don't know? You're the worst flirt around. And I was like, no, I'm not. I was upset. He said, come on, Nicole, look at the way you treat guys. You're such a flirt. I was like, I am not a flirt. I don't sit on guys' laps. But I was. I was a flirt. I was dependent on male attention to make me feel good about myself. I was obsessed with male attention. And even though I had decided I wanted to follow Christ, I hadn't confronted these idolatrous ways of relating to life, ways of relating to the world. Then I went away to Washita Hills Academy where I suddenly felt like I was a very black angel in the midst of very white angels who would all sit around and sing scripture songs and say things like, praise the Lord. And I was like, you guys are creeping me out. <laughs> I do not understand this. <laughs> but I wasn't about to tell them what was going on in my head because I didn't want them to, to realize, you know, whoa, she doesn't belong here. She is sick. But I wrestled. I wrestled with these, these issues that were in my mind and my heart. I didn't want to be like this, but I couldn't seem to break away. You see, along in those years before I'd given my life to Christ, I had also gotten addicted to novels. My parents tried so hard to be really careful in our family. We didn't have a TV. They were careful about what kinds of movies we were allowed to watch. They didn't always know what we watched at our friends' houses, but they didn't let us watch stuff. They didn't let us even they tried to control what kind of music we listened to until I went away to summer camp, good Adventist summer camp, and learned what good old rock and roll was like. <laughs> Got addicted to it. Wonderful. But my parents, they were trying really hard. They wouldn't let us have novels, but one day when I was in my bedroom 
which I had inherited from my two older sisters when they went away to academy, I thought, I wonder what they did with all those raunchy novels they had. And I wondered, could they be under the bed? And I looked, and they were. <laughs> wow, that began a long stint of reading dirty novels especially certain pages that I would read over and over again, describing these explicit love scenes and thinking, wow, that's what it's like. Wow, how amazing. It's so sickening when I look back at it now. That was all about feeling this off-the-charts emotional experience. Nothing about love, nothing loving about that. It was all about me, all about experience, feelings. Then uh, I was so convicted that one day I laid all the novels out on the floor and I was thinking, what should I do with them? I hadn't quite reached the point where I was praying about such things, but I thought I really should get rid of them. And just then my sister opened the bedroom door and caught me with all these novels. So I said, wow, look at what I found under the bed. <laughs> and that was the end of that. Do you remember that, Val? <laughs> And we threw them all in a paper sack and took them out and burned them. <laughs> I don't know if she knew how much I'd read them. Did you know how much I read them? Well, there you go. Now my sister learned something about me. <laughs> that was the end of all those novels, but it wasn't the end of walking through grocery stores that were filled with them. And I'd look at the pictures, you know, these women draped across some guy. And they wow, I wonder what's in there. Read the title, Sex Princess, or whatever garbage. <laughs> and every now and then I'd succumb if nobody was looking. This is a grocery store where nobody's likely to walk in. And I'd get one out and read and just try to scan through and find the dirtiest passages. I'm just being honest with you. It was awful. It was an addiction. I'd feel so dirty, so bad after reading this trash. It was not at all. If you've read those things, just know that is not what married sex is like. Married sex is this pure experience where you don't have shame. There's no guilt afterward. There's no ugly feeling like, oh, that was nasty, but I want more. God doesn't ordain things like that. He's given sex as a gift. Sometimes I thought, why did God make something that is so badly perverted? But it's because it's such a good gift in marriage. It's so beautiful to be able to be one with my husband and to know that he loves me. He's chosen me above everybody else in the world. He's never going to forsake me. He's always going to be faithful to me in this way. You don't want to marry somebody who you can't trust. When my husband goes away to work, I don't wonder who he's talking to on the phone. When he is talking to somebody, you know, he'll come back and talk to me about the conversations he has. Last year, I remember he was talking to me about he didn't know what to say to this girl who was coming to class dressed in immodest clothes. And he said, I don't know what to say. I don't want to seem like I'm a bad guy. What do I say? So he spoke to her when she stopped by his office one day. He said, I'm glad you came by to drop this paper off because I've been wanting to talk to you. And he said, you know, I've noticed in class the way that you've been dressing. And I know that if you keep on dressing this way, guys are going to treat you a certain way. And someday, something is going to happen. And he said, when that happens, if it were to happen, I don't want to be the one who never warned you. I praise God for a man like that. I am so blessed. If you are tempted to continue a relationship with a guy who has wandering eyes, cut it off. You have no idea what 
anguish and grief that can bring into your home and your family. No idea what it's like. Two families that I've been counseling with, the husbands seemed like they'd overcome that porn addiction until they got married. Now, they're trapped. What do I do? What do I do with my children? How do I protect them from this? One of them, the husband just spends all day, every day on the internet, gaming or watching porn or whatever, all day, every day. I'm not exaggerating. She's frantically trying to do yard sales and clean houses to try to make money to pay the rent and the cell phone bill and make ends meet. He's on the internet all day, every day. You have no idea until you have gotten married in the wrong way to the wrong person just how much anguish you can cause yourself. I'm not going to negate the fact that God can do great things in a marriage even if he didn't ordain it. Two people who have married for all the wrong reasons when they surrender themselves completely to God can still have a beautiful experience in which both of them are being changed into the image of God by their relationship to each other. But it's not worth taking that risk. I counseled with a couple a while back who they were trying to decide, do we break up, do we not? I just can't bear to break up with her. I just love him so much. So I said, you know, you've got three options here. You're at this point. There's this mountain between where you are and where you have decided you want to go in your life spiritually. And between here and there, this huge mountain lies. Now you can break up and go your separate ways and say, let's meet in six months and see how it went. No contact, no, no building your relationship with each other, none of that garbage. Just cut it clean and maybe you'll meet each other up in six months and talk then. Or you can just say, let's just not meet at all. Whatever happens, happens, but goodbye now. No plan for the future, no, we're gonna come back to each other someday, no, let's talk about it in six months and reevaluate. And I said, well, there's a third option. And the guy seemed to like this idea at first until I explained it, because he didn't really want to break up no matter what. <clears throat> but then I said, you can stay together and try to go over this mountain together. Don't break up, just try to get spiritually to where you want to be. But that is like staying shackled at the wrist and the ankle to each other. You're going through brambles and bushes and climbing over rocks and all that, you're going to hurt each other a lot. You're going to impede each other's progress a lot. And you're not going to be able to make progress nearly as quickly or as easily. It's going to be very, very painful if you want to do that. You can try if you want. But when two people are in an idolatrous relationship, they're like two magnets being held right next to each other. Let's just stay as close as possible, but we're not going to slurp together. We're not going to. We're not going to. How do you stop yourself? You're in an idolatrous relationship. It's so hard, you've gotta have some space. Now if you're in a relationship, and I know some of you listening are, and you may realize, you may be being convicted, I'm in an idolatrous relationship. I know I'm not handling things fully the way God wants me to be. We never, we never seem to quite be able to say, I'm totally not doing what God wants. But I'm, I know I'm not fully surrendered to God in some areas in my relationship, but I don't think it's quite at the point where we have to break up. Okay, so give yourself a break. How about, say, two weeks or two months? You know, you pray about it. The Lord can help you to know. But, you know, say you say to your boyfriend, I'm going to give it two weeks, no contact. If he's not willing to go through that, um, maybe he's not able to control himself sufficiently. I remember a, a girl I talked to about this. Her boyfriend was not a Christian, 
but she couldn't break it off. She tried. She went right back to the idolatrous relationship. She said, I just can't. I just can't. Can we just try to keep going? You know, I'm going to try to grow spiritually with him. So I said, well, you're going to have to stop having sex, right? She said, yeah, yeah, you're right. I'll tell him that. So she tells him, we're not going to have sex anymore. Comes back to me. She says, he said that if I won't, he's going to have to go find somebody down in town to do it. And this is in Africa. One out of every four people walking past on the street is HIV positive. If he's not yet, he's going to be soon. And she's willing to risk her life? She wants to marry this jerk? What is she thinking? But when you're in an idolatrous relationship, you can't see clearly. You're enmeshed. You're gripped by this iron hold of need and fear. Remember, we talked about that combination, that deadly combination of need and fear in our previous seminar. When you're caught in a net of need and fear, you cannot break free of yourself. You must have Christ. Only God can set us free from the trap of lust. And I praise God that he has done that for me. And I know no matter where you are in life, no matter how addicted you are to anything, God can set you free, not just from sexual sin, but from any other sin that you're struggling with. How do we change? How does God set us free from addictions? How does that work? The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all, with unveiled face, reflecting as a mirror, the glory of the Lord are transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as from the Lord the Spirit. What does that mean practically? How does God change us? That means that as I look at Jesus, I see myself in a new light. I don't see myself as such a good person. I'm not that bad. I don't murder anybody. You know, I don't commit adultery. We see ourselves as profoundly evil when we compare ourselves to a holy God. When you see yourself compared to a holy God, you go, oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? And then the great God of the universe says, I will. I already paid for those sins. You know you're feeling so awful about that? I already knew you were going to do it when I went to the cross. I carried it there. I did it because I was going to set you free. Will you let me set you free? We can't understand that. How does that work? How does God set us free? It's a process. I won't pretend it's an event. If you just pray enough one time, then you're forever set free, and you'll never struggle with sin anymore. Some people would really like that, but that's not the way God works. God promises to work in us by beholding. This is a principle of life. If you want to be changed from who you are, you behold who you want to be. You want to be like Jesus, he will change you. Now, it's a process, not an event, and we have to depend on him to change our tastes. It's like when I was telling you about my taste had to change gradually. I remember how it was with junk food. I love sugar. It is, uh, it is one of those things that I will always love. And until Jesus comes, I will have to battle with uh, making sure that I don't indulge in that sugar. So when I first went away to Washita Hills Academy, which I thought was the convent, told all my friends, so long, I'm off to the convent. <laughs> I remember when I, I changed, I got there dressed in jeans, thinking, wow, they're going to be so impressed at how conservative I am. I wore jeans in the summer. They don't even allow jeans there. 
<laughs> so I went in the dorm and I changed into my new skirt. It was this long, gray, um, like pleated thing. I looked down at myself and said, oh my goodness. I look like I'm in uniform. <laughs> it was the beginning of a new life for me. So three months into this journey, almost three months into there, I managed to go home for a weekend. My mom took me shopping. She said, yes, go buy all the stuff that you haven't been able to have for a long time. I know you haven't had real food. And I loaded up. I got frozen yogurt instead of ice cream because I was good, you know. <laughs> I don't know what the difference is, but, you know, some enzymes thrown in there. I ate all this wonderful stuff. It tasted delicious. The next morning I woke up, I felt awful. My taste hadn't yet changed, but my body had. So the things that used to be wonderful to me that I could just devour without the slightest effect, now I felt gross because I knew what it was like to feel good. You see, our tastes change as we behold. And as we behold evil things in other ways, our tastes change too. How does a person go from being this wonderful Christian girl to lusting and craving evil, shameful, sexual things? Don't think it's an event. It's a process. God changes us by the process of beholding. The devil changes us by the process of beholding too. For me, that junk food of my brain fed me until I didn't find the Bible interesting at all. I didn't want to read the Bible. I didn't want to, you know, my mom would say when we go, please, mom, we're so bored. Can we just go rent a movie? She'd go, well, why do you have to be bored? There are all those nice red books over on the shelf that you've never read. Oh, mom, I didn't want to read anything that Ellen White wrote. We all know what Ellen, Wright, Ellen White wrote. Dear Brother M, you need to stop doing this. So I never cracked those books because I already knew what they were like. Oh, that. When I, finally, when I finally got messages to young people, my mom gave me a messages to young people for Christmas. And I was like, thank you, Mom. Great. You know, and then I was like, well, look, I can read a novel this fat in four hours. How long can it take me to read a messages to young people? I, you know, it's a gift. I better just try. So I started reading the first few pages. I was like, wow, this thing is actually applicable to my life. This is like stuff that I'm going through. And then I discovered the whole last section was all about dating and stuff. Well, that was exciting. <laughs> you know what got skipped? <laughs> the whole rest of the book. <laughs> but I did eventually read the book, and I found all these exciting, interesting things that really applied to my life. My tastes were changing. You see, if you continue eating healthy food long enough, eventually you'll, you'll get a distaste for the garbage. You'll start not wanting to have those horrible feelings you have after you eat the garbage. Um, our polluted imaginations have to be cleansed. And it does take time. It does take energy. We are changed by beholding so many things in our culture. Magazines, you know, you just walk through the grocery store. I just, I have my own personal pet peeve. Now that I'm a married woman and I see these magazines saying, 15 positions your boyfriend wishes you would do in bed tonight. And I'm like, you guys nauseate me. What kind of boyfriend wants you to have 15 new positions? You know why they want 15 new positions? Because they're bored with sex. Because these people started having sex when they were 15 
and it wasn't what it was cracked up to be in the movies. Wow, it looked great in the movies. But here, you know, I just feel so dirty and it's gross. And then the guy is it's a jerk to me the next day, you know. Sex isn't what they thought it was going to be like. But surely it'll be better with the next person. So they move on to the next person, the next person. They try it a different way. And then when they're 20 years old and they're jaded, it's like, well, maybe I just need some new positions. No. You need a new approach to sex. Saving it for a man who loves you instead of uses you. These magazines that make it sound like if you just find the right position, your boyfriend will go crazy for you and never leave you. Movies? Movies glorify these, these evil images, not just of sex, but of a whole way of relating to relationships. You know, the other day, I was, um, I, somebody gave me a movie that was supposed to be a Christian movie, all, you know, teaching a moral and all that. I was like, all right, well, let's see what's in it. I was horrified. This Christian movie ends up having this um, girl decide that she's not going to go out with the bad, bad guy who was really just trying to use her. Instead, she's going to go out with the other random guy who lives down the street and happens to be drop-dead gorgeous, who she just met, and now she's going to go out dancing with him. And they kiss each other. They just met each other. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? They're not thinking, and that's the problem. They're feeling. And when you're just going by feelings instead of thinking, you will gonna, you're going to get what everybody else around you that's going by feelings instead of thinking is getting. The novels, we've already gone there. Music, you know, there have been so many people who make poor decisions because they're listening to the wrong kind of music. And you can tell me until you're blue in the face, no, no, music is okay. You know, listening to that kind of music, it's just my culture. It's just what works for me. It really is fine. Um, yeah. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have this nice candlelit evening where, you, you know, you sit down with your boyfriend and then he turns on the music. You get up and march around the room excitedly together. It's so beautiful. It's so romantic. Music sets a tone, and those words go past your, your conscious mind and get past that filter, and you may do things that you would never have done. You know, recently I got a CD by a person that I used to love listening to when I was a kid, and he had this gorgeous voice, and so I, I was like, oh, good, good old songs that I used to listen to when I was young, and I listened to some of the songs, and I was horrified. I didn't realize that they had slipped that in there. You know, these songs, I just didn't notice back then, but now I listened carefully to the lyrics and I realized, and these weren't songs with like pounding rhythm, it was just nice, beautiful love songs, and here's this love song that I knew growing up and I didn't realize. Here are these words that say, look, I'm not married to you, and I'm just leaving your apartment this morning, but when I come back, I'll bring you a wedding ring. Another song was saying, you know, I'm sorry about all those lies I told you, but I promise I'll never lie to you again. Oh, yeah, the songs of the dysfunctional relationship. But enough on music. Daydreaming, you know, this was a real problem for me. I had this whole fantasy life. You remember my friend I told you about. We loved to think about sexual things. It was such a fascinating topic to us, the, by far the most exciting thing in the world. And so we would talk about these things and we would make up fantasies and then talk to each other for hours on the phone because we, we had local calling to each other. So we'd talk, well, I just made up this daydream the other day. Here's what happened in it. You and I were captured by Indians. And then, you know, 
And we'd talk for hours about all the details of this wonderful fantasy that, that I had. And of course, when I actually made up the daydream, she was not along. I was captured by Indians. And this gorgeous brave hauls me away on the back of his horse and rescues me just as they're about to kill me and then flings me into the bushes. And you can imagine, you know, it was so horrible. It was so not, so not like what God has ordained for sex. I, you know, I'm ashamed to tell you these things. <laughs> Probably it's all going to be on audioverse and the whole world will hear great. <laughs> but I'm not ashamed because I have been transformed by the renewing of my mind. This is who I was. And I want to share with you honestly who I was because I want you to know that if you are caught in any of these traps, you are not stuck forever. The same God who delivered me can deliver you. He isn't sitting there going, man, how can I do something with Nicole? She's just as really exceptionally warped because love is who he is. A miracle worker who can do anything with a surrendered soul. He doesn't sit here going, man, this one is a real mess. He says, are you willing to let me work? Because by the way, I could just speak and this whole world is in existence. I can change you. And the only thing holding me back is your willingness to surrender. When we surrender, he does these beautiful things in our life. You know, I remember... One of the other girls that I went to high school with, one day we were, we were talking about sex and the mysteries, three of us girls. And the other girl is like, well, I've actually had sex. The other two of us are really goggle-eyed. The other girl asked what I wanted to ask but didn't dare. She's, you know, we sit there silent, both of us burning with the same question until finally she said it first, what was it like? So she describes to us all the raunchy details. Well, you take off your clothes, and then you lay your legs open. And I'm like, you know, these weren't anything that I didn't know, but here we are, goggle-eyed. Wow, you know, that's what it's like? That's what happens? Here is a girl, 17 years old, who has made these horrible choices. She's stolen from her future husband. She's scarred herself for life. And we're going, wow, that's what it's like? Wow, my heart is just broken for her. I don't know where she went or what happened to her in her life, but I know what her trajectory was then, and it wasn't good. It's so sad when we look at these things with an impure mind. But it's not something that just we break out of easily. Easy in, easy out. Not really, right? I remember, you know, <laughs> sometimes it's, it's very easy to get into a mess, mess and not easy to get out of a mess. I remember when I was colportering, I just started. This is when I was doing big books. In big books, you have your own car, and you drive somewhere, and you look for people around there. You're not just dropped off somewhere. So I was big booking. This is like my first day big books. I've got my Ford Escort, and I'm driving up this mountain road, and I thought, well, it's a road. There's got to be somebody at the end of it. So I kept going. I kept going down this road, and I started seeing... The, the ruts in the road were getting deeper, but I had one, one wheel in the middle and one wheel on the side, so I thought I was going to be okay. So I kept going, going. The ruts kept getting deeper. Eventually, the ruts were like a foot deep, and uh, it dawned on me that maybe nobody lives out here. It was actually a road into a national forest, um, <laughs> which I found out later, and nobody did live out there. <laughs> but some logging truck had gone down that road when it was very muddy, and I could not break out of those ruts. I had to keep going and going and going and going until, praise God, I finally came to a place where the ruts weren't as deep and I could turn around and go the miles back down the hill. 
that I had been going up, waiting for this rut. You know, it's easy to get into a rut. It's not easy to get out of a rut. And I won't pretend to you that you're just going to break away by one prayer session. But you don't break away by trying hard. You know, I see it something like this. If you drop a, a drop of dye into a glass of water, you can easily put that dye in, and the water all changes color. But you cannot just take that drop out in the same way. It's in there, and it's permeating everything. How do you get rid of that dye in the glass of water? Well, when it comes to our minds, we can't throw it out. We can't wipe it out. What we have to do is pour in clear water. When you put pure water in, that dye will be watered down and watered down and watered down and watered down. I can't say that no bad image ever comes to my mind anymore, but I can say I walk through the grocery store and I see those novels and I don't pick them up. Every now and then I go, hmm, ew, I'm not going to do that. Why would I want to pollute my mind again? You see, God cleanses us by beholding. As we behold him, we see his glory. You see, this is what the fear of God does to us. When we are beholding everything on a horizontal scale, we don't understand the majesty of the God of the universe who's offering to pour himself into us and purify us. But when God pours himself into us, he gets rid of that dye. He pours himself in until that dye is watered down and watered down and watered down until to the casual observer we look pure. But in God's mind, he does something even better. There are two kinds of cleansing that God does. One is justification. Justification is forgiveness. You can think of it simply this way. Justification cleanses your past. The moment you are justified, you are as if you have never sinned. You are pure as the driven snow. God has washed away every bad choice you have ever made. That's justification. But God does another kind of miracle. He does sanctification. Sanctification cleanses your future. It gives you the power to live pure, not just to be forgiven, but to be cleansed by the renewing of your mind. This is what God does. Justification washes your past. Sanctification washes your future. And when you give your life to Christ, it doesn't matter how bad you've been. You may have made some terrible choices lately. Maybe you're still wondering, can God forgive somebody like me? I want you to know the God of the universe is not sitting there wondering, can I do anything with her? She's really messed up. He's saying, give yourself to me. Do not be caught up in how big you are. Be how, caught up in how big I am. Because the God of the universe is able to take any surrendered soul because that's who God is. The difference between guilt and shame is another vital thing you have to understand. Guilt is a message from God. Guilt is something that God says to you. He says, you've done something bad. You've let something come between you and me. Let go of it. Let's get close again. Let me be to you what I was before, your husband, your best friend. Let's get rid of this thing that stands between us because I love you. Guilt is a message of hope. It says, I can still cleanse you. Shame is different. Shame is a message from Satan. It says, you are bad. Not you've done something bad, but you are bad. God himself couldn't love you or forgive you. The blood of Jesus is not enough to cover you. And if you get caught up in shame, you will believe God himself can't wash me. That is such a profound 
cheating of yourself. Do you realize what Jesus did for you? For you alone, for you alone, he would have gone to the cross. He would have died. He would have spilled that blood because of your sins, knowing you were still going to do them, knowing he didn't even have to create you, but he loved you before he formed you in the womb. He knew you. He knew the pain you were going to cause him. Pain is not his enemy. Sin is his enemy. God is caught in this bloodbath of pain. He hurts more than any person, more than all people in the world put together, just like I would hurt more watching my son being tortured to death than I would being tortured myself. You know, when I was having babies, it hurt a lot. I didn't have any pain medication because I thought it might not be best for my babies. And it was, it was a wonderful kind of pain. It was pain, let me tell you, it hurt. Oh, it hurt. But when I hurt, I thought, wow, this is a gift of love to my baby. And in that way, it became a beautiful kind of pain. <clears throat> but God's love for us is so great that he knew, looking at Adam and Eve, he knew if I create them, I breathe the breath of life into them, they're going to cause me more pain than anybody could ever possibly imagine. But he swallowed it. I'm going to take that pain because love is who I am. Love is who God is. He can't stop loving you. He didn't create you because he was lonely. He's a triune God. He wasn't lonely. He didn't need us. He loved us. He created us not because he needed us. Otherwise, he would have only created the ones who would love him back, right? He created us because love wants to pour itself out in loving someone else. That's what God wants to do for you. He has this tremendous outpouring of love. And whether you feel it or not, it's real. Don't believe your feelings. Believe the word of God. We have this terrible culture in our world that we believe our feelings. God says, but I feel. God says he'll forgive me. So we pray and we confess our sins, but we get up from our knees and we still feel dirty. So we think we are. That's a lie. That's shame. Guilt is what God sends to you and says, let me wash you clean. We pray, we confess, he forgives us, and the devil comes in with shame as soon as we get done praying. He says, you're not clean. You need to do something. Why don't you go out and do some ministry? Why don't you read the Bible for a while? You will never read the Bible enough to cleanse your heart. The blood of Jesus cleanses your heart. And when you realize that, you go, wow, I am so unworthy. And that love, that understanding of that love will just bathe you in I am so unworthy and you love me so much. You see, God wants us to understand our sense of lovability and our sense of worth must be built in him. If we don't get our sense of lovability and worth from him, we will crave some love and worth from someone else. We cannot, we cannot stop being worshipers. The only question is who we will worship. If you don't worship God, you will worship something or someone else. And whatever you worship, it will really be self. I want to close by talking about root sins and fruit sins. We often confess our fruit sins, but we leave the root sins undisturbed. I'm going to talk about this more tomorrow, but just realize if you have a sin issue, you're not going to overcome it by just saying, I'm not going to do that anymore. You know, I talked to somebody recently, he was addicted to porn, and he said, well, I've been doing better, I'm only falling once every few weeks now. <laughs> and I said, well, praise God that he's delivering you, but what are you doing? To overcome. So, well, I've got an accountability partner. I've got a really good filter on my computer, and I can keep my computer where nobody can, 
you know, where, where it's going to be in a public place and people can see it and I don't have a laptop anymore. He's got all these structures in place, strategies to keep himself from sinning. And those are great things, great ideas, no problem with that at all. But I said, but that's not going to solve the problem. I said, I don't know what's driving you to porn, but when you go to God and you say, thou God seest me, you know what's in my heart. The word of God discerns the thoughts and motives of the heart. And I said, I don't know what it is you're longing for. Maybe it's power. Maybe you want to be in control. Maybe it's lovability. Maybe you want somebody to love you. Maybe it's intimacy. Maybe you crave somebody to accept you the way you are at your most naked and vulnerable. I don't know what it is you're longing for, but I know that if you keep on trying to push that away and you're not getting it from Christ, you're going to be driven back to porn. You're not going to be able to break that evil cycle. God wants to set us free from that evil cycle, and he will. Go to him if you're struggling with something and say, Lord, what is the root sin behind this fruit sin? For him, I suggested, think about what kind of porn is it you're drawn, driven to? I know it's an ugly thing to think about, but if you think of what it is you're, that's driving you, then you'll know what it is that you need to find satisfaction for in Christ. Maybe something's driving you to an addiction. What do you go to when you feel low? This is how you can figure out what does God want you to be. He'll show you. When you feel low, what do you turn to? Do you turn to your Bible or do you open your cell phone? If you open your cell phone, you're looking to other people for intimacy. You're looking to other people to satisfy you. Do you order a pizza? You're looking to food. What is it you're trying to escape from? You've got to feel that pain. Give it to God. Let him uproot it. If you keep those roots in your life, they'll just come out in other ugly ways. I know we need to finish here, but um, I just want to appeal to every one of you. I don't know what you're struggling with, but the God of the universe does. He already knew before he created you what sins you were going to struggle with. He created you anyway and loved you with an everlasting love. He saw already the sins that you were going to do, and he said, but I'll be able to cover it if only she'll surrender it to me. He's going to do that for you. And the only ingredient that's necessary is your surrender. He's already done the other things. He's already paid in his blood. And your measure of worth is the blood that was shed for you. The measure of your lovability is the love of a God who says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Drink those things in. Meditate on the love of God for you and your worth in his eyes. And those fruit sins, the leaves on that plant, will wither up on their own. As you get water from the living fountain, the other things will go away. You'll be able to be set free. Tomorrow, we're going to go deeper in this concept. We're going to talk about the broken cisterns, how, how God wants to set us free from addictive cycles. And he will. He will do this for you. I promise there is nothing that holds you that God cannot set you free from. The promises of God are given to set us free. If there's something that you want to talk to the Lord about right now, maybe something you've been convicted about. It might be something you've been escaping to instead of to him. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's some attitude that you realize that you've, you've been cultivating. If there's something you've been convicted of, I'm going to ask you to just bow your head with me and we'll pray. I'm going to give you a, 
a few moments to pray silently and talk to God about that. And then you can go out in nature later on and, and talk to God about it, surrender more deeply to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're coming to you just as we are. Lord, we need you so much. We need to find our sense of worth and lovability and identity in you. You know what we've been struggling with, Lord, and we're going to surrender those things to you right now as we talk to you about them personally. Lord, take these things that have been on our hearts, the things that we've been fleeing to, and deliver us from evil. Help us to surrender to you completely so that you can pull these things out, not just the fruits, but the roots, and we can be set free to be transformed into your image because we know that's your glory, to change sinful, ugly, wretched people into your beautiful, pure image. We love you, Lord. Amen.